Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantine Kisson. And this is the show for you if you're bored of people arguing on the internet over subjects they know nothing about. At Trigonometry, we don't pretend to be the experts, we ask the experts. Our amazing expert guest this week is the director and founder of the Institute of Ideas, Claire Fox. Welcome to Trigonometry. Good to be here. Oh, thank you very much for coming on. The first question we always like to ask our guests is, how did you get to where you are? What's been your story and your journey? Um, actually, for many years I was a teacher um, and I worked in further education and I was passionate about aspects of uh, education that I thought were neglected um, and became interested in creating discussion and debate. I was also involved in politics. I took a year out from teaching to relaunch what was Living Marxism and relaunch it as LM Magazine. Um, we weren't pretending it had no relationship to Living Marxism, which is why I had LM, mm -hmm. but it also was um, a different magazine in as much as the uh, Living Marxism was set up by the Revolutionary Communist Party. Revolutionary Communist Party closed down and there was this magazine that I thought was great, had a readership, and so I took the year out to relaunch it with a colleague, Helena Goldberg, we did that New Current Affairs magazine, recognising that we were going to go across left and right. Free speech magazine, brilliant. We got sued for libel in the first issue. <laughs> <laughs> so my big break into... And we got sued for libel and we decided that as we were a free speech magazine, we weren't going to shred the copies or tear it up or apologise because we hadn't done anything wrong. And so we then spent the next three years fighting a libel case. Um, but bringing the magazine out. And during that time, it got uh, a following and a subscription base, and it built, and it became very well known. And one of the things that we did was we launched a summer of events called the Institute of Ideas. Um, and that was after we lost the libel case, but we kind of did this summer of events anyway. It was a sellout. And then we thought, oh. And then people came and said, you should do these debates, you know. Mm -hmm. It's really important to have discussions and why, you know, discuss things on panels with people who aren't just the obvious suspects and attract particularly young people to come along and debate, create a new public square. So that was it. We carried on by accident. And that, that's kind of how I got where I am now. That's brilliant. That's what we tried to do on here as well, is to have conversations with interesting people, just as we were talking before we started. You mentioned uh, there were certain areas of education that you felt were not being properly catered to. What particular... Were you... well, well, what I meant by that was I, I was... Um, uh, this is kind of uh, trigger warning that old fogey comments coming out now. Too. <laughs> <laughs> I felt that um, the young people I was teaching were increasingly not aware, not widely read. Mm -hmm. I taught in a further education college. I wasn't expecting them to have kind of uh, had access to the canon, but I did think that there was a closing down and a narrowing down of what they knew even in terms of cultural references. Uh, an example that I use quite often is because it really struck me at the time was, you know, I taught English and I'd be saying, right, so there's an, there's a, there's an apple in this poem, what might that symbolise? Anybody like, look at me. I go, an apple, you know, like an apple. And then I realised that they didn't have any clue about apples and Garden of Eden and, you know, any of these kind of like potential. So I almost like, and then you'd sort of say, this reminds me, you know, this is like the 18th century. What is that, you know, 19th century? 20th, anything, right? Nothing was, so I, I was frustrated by that. And also just politically, I felt that they were being ill-served in terms of getting a very insipid, 
version of kind of uh, left-wing politics, which I was involved in left-wing politics, but a kind of knee-jerk, one-dimensional uh, kind of version of kind of um, uh, left-wing politics. So I was frustrated at that. And so, I, you know, so I just thought we just need to have more debate and discussion. Uh, these young people deserve to have a kind of political culture that's rich and open at the very time when it wasn't rich and open. And and, and it was at the start, actually, of, um, you, know, you know, it's kind of Blair was coming, you know, so it was kind of spin doctors, everything, mm. you know, technocrat technocratic politics, no ideals. Uh, just at the time when universities were beginning to kind of deploy some of the postmodern uh, tropes and the kind of closing down of debate. So uh, I was arrogant. <laughs> I can't have this. Well, and I wanted to have a decent magazine that people could read that would be a bit different and uh, open-minded and bring into it people who you wouldn't normally see. And so the first issue had, you know, Roger Scruton alongside some well-known left-wing commentators. You know what I mean? Like, interesting people saying interesting things. That was what we did. Well, that sounds great. And uh, I, your Wikipedia page, which I'm sure is the best source of information, the most accurate, accurate source of mad. <laughs> information about you, says that you're libertarian. Is that accurate? Would you... I, I think that that late, I think that what has happened subsequent over the last twenty years, I don't mean to me, but to everyone, is that nobody knows how to label anyone anymore. You know, I'm I, I came from a a Marxist background, and I believe in freedom. This apparently is not allowed. Or <laughs> understood. Apparently, you don't teach that bit in uh, first year politics degrees. Or something. everybody goes, you can't be a Marxist, and you know, and. I also am aware of the fact that, you know, Marxism was a very important philosophical outlook for me. I, have, I don't disavow it, but I'm no longer involved in an active Marxist organisation or anything. I consider myself to be on the left, but increasingly, God knows what that means. And so I think that what's happened over the years is that people, the one consistent thing that people can work out about me is that I've consistently argued for free speech. I've consistently argued for free thinking. They think that libertarian is the appropriate tag then they go well, but you don't appear to be into the free markets and you know so that's people get confused anyway i can't be bothered to argue so <laughs> i simply say i don't see libertarian as an insult it's just that i wouldn't have chosen that tag myself particularly because to me being libertarian and being sort of associating yourself with marxism they seem kind of polar opposites in certain instances well like, they have become that i think i mean in america libertarianism or kind of free thinking and the left is not such an alien concept but in the uk it has become that and um but all, that's all i'm saying is i don't even know what libertarian is. i mean if, if it's meant you believe in freedom no ifs no buts then i'm not arguing uh in terms of where these uh, strictly where these political labels come from probably i don't quite fit into either that so i i kind of let it ride and as I say, I don't bother arguing with Wikipedia, which is not. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's no point arguing with that. So let's come back to, to the kids, to education, because one of the things I've listened to a few things that you were talking about, snowflakes and the snowflake culture and we've, everybody being hypersensitive, everybody feeling like a victim. You wrote, I find that offensive. Tell us a little bit about what's going on uh, in our universities and then schools and why are people now, are they first of all becoming more sensitive and if so, why? Yes, yeah, so one thing that Wikipedia does say is if you look at Generation Snowflake, it says Claire Fox is responsible for introducing this term into the UK. And that's entirely fictitious, but I sort of know what they mean. Because in I Find That Offensive, which is just a short book on free speech, 
I talked about a phrase that was emerging in American universities of Generation Snowflake, and I decided that I would write the book about and to Generation Snowflake. And so that's kind of how I suppose it became um, associated with the term. But I'm aware of the fact that it's an incredibly insulting, caricatured uh, term. Mm. And in fact, I don't use it in that kind of, you know, you Generation Snowflake, you're all <laughs> hopeless. What I was interested in, <coughs> excuse me, well, what I was interested in was <coughs> why young people and I had observed this myself because I hear a lot of talks in schools and universities and so on, seem to be increasingly thin-skinned and easily offended. And rather than arguing back, which is entirely appropriate, now I go and speak, you expect them to argue back, people say, you can't say that. Then getting upset, I find that offensive, you can't say that. And it was kind of like, I just thought, I can't, I'm, I'm sort of developing a reputation for going in and talking to 17-year-olds and kind of, ending up in tears. I mean, this is kind of like <laughs> Sounds like my teaching career. Yeah, it, it, it was a kind of peculiar shift in a way. They weren't kind of bolshy or argumentative or, or even kind of silently, sullenly glowering at me. They were getting upset. Mm. And they. it was almost as though they couldn't believe that anyone would say certain things. And so um, I, I, and, and I was aware of the shifts in university culture, which is, in fact, um, sadly intensifying, which is at university, which after all, almost 50% of the cohort go to university. So we're not talking now about a small group of this generation. That there was an increasing tendency to argue for the protection of students from dangerous ideas and the whole emergence of safe space culture in particular preoccupied me. It wasn't so much no platforming. No platforming was around when I was at university a million years ago. And <laughs> although it's now broadened who is no platformed and there's well-known um, uh, examples of, you know, one feminist group banning another feminist, you know, German Greer and all, yeah. all these kind of examples. The real issue that fascinated me was safe spaces and trigger warnings. Mm. The idea that you would go, leave home, go on this exciting intellectual journey to university and immediately demand, demand of the authorities that they make you feel safe seemed extraordinary to me. I mean, this is a period at which the one thing you don't want historically, if you're young, is to be looked after and feel safe. That's the aspiration of, you know, old age pensioners. You want these adventure. Days, the old, yeah. These days, the old age pensioners are all going off, you know, yeah. on yeah. trips around the world and experimenting. But you want them to bust out of this, right? Yeah. There, There is a, a generation that demands that they feel safe and comfortable and don't have their ideas disturbed. I was anxious that this was a problem and... But no, that's really, really interesting what you say there. Where do you think that comes from? Yes. This idea that I don't want to have my views challenged. I want to feel safe. Is it because we mollycoddle them too much as kids? Because, you know, because of the right-wing tabloid press, you know, paedophiles and all the rest of it? Is it the fact that, you know, that children, now they're getting ferried to and from school? Is it the fact that now we, we indulge them, you know, that you, know, you can fulfil your dreams, everybody's special, even though we're not, there's a billion of us, no one's going to miss us if we die? Yeah, all of that. So, um, <laughs> that, and in a way, that's why I wrote the book, or what the book's about, because we, because actually, I didn't want to try and write a book about free speech, in as much as there's been some fantastically brilliant books recently about free speech, and I felt I had nothing to contribute. I wanted to try and understand what had created Generation Snowflake, and so I said, by the time they get to go to university or leave home, they're already preloaded with anxieties and. One of the things that I talk about is a kind of safety first culture in which we've socialised 
the kids, basically, as parents, as teachers, particularly social policy and education policy. As you say, you know, we scaremonger everything, right? I mean, you know, eating too much sugar is like the greatest catastrophe that's going to kill all the children. There's an obesity time bomb. It's called crack cocaine of childhood in the House of Commons. That's like having a bar of chocolate, right? Or having a fizzy drink. There isn't anything that we say to young people is kind of like, it's all right, you'll cope. Mm. You know, we basically scaremonger all the time. Catastrophize is the word that I use, a terrible word. But anyway, and uh, so in a way, we've kind of introduced young people from a very early age into telling them that the world is the scariest place in the world. And the role of adults historically was, you know, you get a kid, right? When you're a kid, and you, you know, when I was a young, young child, I was scared of the dark. And I always thought that the jacket behind the door was a monster. And, you know, the, the dressing gown or whatever, right? And obviously, mm. the role of the adult is to come in and say, no, it's all right, it's not, it's not, no. You're stop having a vivid imagination and to reassure you. Now, if you say, I think there's a monster hiding behind the door, they'll be child, phoning child protection, right? And say, oh my God, there probably is. Oh my God, you know, so the adults don't reassure the young, they make it worse. And your paedophiles, right? I don't know that that's the right-wing tabloid press can be entirely just blamed for that. I mean, we have become obsessed with child abuse, mm. children being at risk, and so all sorts of uh, uh, well-known things have emerged from this, like children not playing outside anymore, and over molly coddled, over terrified of every kind of stranger danger that you can possibly have, and then told even that if they stay at home and kind of stick in their bedroom, they're going to be groomed by sex gangs online. And, you know, everything is a, a sort of threat. So I think that that has created an over-anxiety amongst young people. I mean, that's the kind of culture in which they are growing up. At the same time, unprepared to deal with the rough and tumble of everyday life because they also then don't have an opportunity to experiment, take risks, make mistakes. So they are kind of infantilised much later and mollycoddled in the way that you say. And then there's a whole other story about the self-esteem movement in the way that you said people aren't special. And so you get a combination of kind of thin-skinned, over-scared youth uh, who also think they're very special, the most important person in the world. And there's nothing more toxic than that mix, I think. So obviously not every single young person is like that. We'll cut that, 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 <laughs> that, that is the climate in which they are socialised. It is a generational yeah. trend, though. I mean, you know, I... I, I insist on that because obviously I talk, still talk to lots of young people and it's, you know, you can kind of get this like, well, I'm not like that. But that's, you know, you have to be able to discuss generational mm, trends. Mm. The model that we have of young people is, is that, that they need to be protected. They're vulnerable. They're at risk of mental illness. There's anxiety rampaging through this generation. We're told that they've never suffered so much as any previous young generation. That makes me laugh. I mean, that's the, the idea. Well, you know what? As you were talking there, I was actually thinking it makes sense that they would be the most anxious generation in history because if you've been coddled in the way that you've described all your life, you, you feel utterly unprepared for the real world. And you know at some level that the real world is full of challenges and adventures and dangers and you know that you're not prepared. Anxiety is exactly the right response to that situation. So that's what happens is it be, it, go, it becomes a fait accompli. Mm. You know, it becomes a kind of... So in that sense, it's not made up. It's yeah. not a contrived thing. There might be... Uh, opportunistic um, student union officers who kind of use these uh, tropes to close down debate in a kind of very opportunistic get in the papers, you know, we're not having this person. But 
most people actually are scared of words and scared of these mm. things. But I think the reason I'm saying this is that, you know, in response to some of the educational pressures that young people face, a constant diet of exams, there are problems in schools, I appreciate that. Um, but, but, but the adult community, the, the, the teaching unions, lots of teachers, their parents sort of say, you are making our children mentally ill. Um, because they've got the stress of exams coming up. And you think, no, it's, it's called exam stress. You're meant to be stressed before an exam. I mean, it's not like, everything is talked up. And it, then people ac accumulate both the language and the lack of resilience that means that it does become a real problem. You then go to university and somebody says, now you actually have to read some books and at the end of the time, you know, you can't take the books into the exam with you at the end. And they can't cope, right? They just can't cope in a way. And, you know, there's it's actually, it can be stressful leaving home because you don't know anyone. You have to, you know. But this is called growing up. It's mm. exciting. You can look at it as an exciting adventure or a scary moment, and more and more see it in the scary moment phase. Um, but the point about this sort of the way that 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 these things are posed is, if you think about some of the generational debates that we have at the moment, people say, you know, young people are being betrayed by baby boomers. They're facing unprecedented pressures. I mean, unprecedented. Britain in 2018, unprecedented pressure. No <laughs> young people have ever suffered the way these young people suffer, right? And, and when I say, what, how? I say, well, you know, you can't buy a house before you're 24. I think, well, I, that is not a great hardship, right? It might not be great. I mean, I didn't buy my first house till I was 40, and I thought it was a great privilege to be able to, right? Yeah. I mean, first of all, there's a little class question there, on that, yeah. on, as an aside. But also, unprecedented pressures, you know, like cyberbullying. You know, never mind kids going up chimneys or down mines or having to leave war. school at 14 or being uh, recruited into the army. All of this, right? No, cyberbullying. Somebody yeah. might, you know, and how can they possibly cope because they judge themselves on how many likes they get and the pressures of Instagram and this is driving them. I, I don't mean these aren't new pressures and interesting, but this is not an, un, you know, the idea that they're suffering more than any other generation. Mm. Seems unlikely to me. Yeah. It is, because I still work in a school a couple of days a week, and I mean, we infantilise children, and of course, that sounds like an oxymoron, but we, we really do. I mean, I remember one teacher came up to me and was like, oh, look what my like seven-year-old's created, and he showed me a picture, a macaroni picture, and I was just like, look, seven-year-old's made my trainers. Do you see what I mean? We just think that they can't do these things. And children are far more capable and resilient than you exactly. give them credit for. So we're dragging that away from them. Yes. We're, 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 we're robbing them. So my book, in a way, was saying, without letting the kids off the hook, my book was saying, it's awful. Do you see what I mean? So what mm -hmm. I was trying to say yeah. was, we have created, you know, we've created their own Frankenstein monster. Then when they take it to the logical degree and go to university and start banning us from going in, we're all like, oh, that's outrageous. Mm. What's wrong with them? And then we lampoon them as being these thin skin. But actually, it's the culture that they've come through exactly in the way that you said. And, and I mean, I mean, you see it so often like that I taught a girl a few a few weeks ago and she broke her foot. And of course, you know, it's a bit upsetting for her. She's only 10 years old. She broke her foot. Her parents wheeled her in in a wheelchair. I mean, what what was wrong with just giving her a couple of crutches? And look, I'm sorry, you broke your foot. That's a bit upsetting, but you know what? This is life. You're just going to have to get on with it. Instead of wheeling her around in a wheelchair, 
It just seems excessive. Like, you know, the kids come, oh, Mr. Foster, look, I've got a little cut on my finger. Great, get on with it. We seem to have forgotten. <laughs> Hardcore. Hard yeah. yeah, we seem to have forgotten that. And actually, a lot of the times in life, you just need to suck it up and get on with it. But if I, your child yeah. goes to Francis school, you know, you know what's happening <laughs> yeah, exactly. in there. By the way, I, I, for anyone watching, I would like to say Francis was not defending child labour there. He wasn't <laughs> making a case for it. Um, but I think that... Although but, it know, is profitable. Yeah, yeah. The thing, no, but you do make a good point about, about, you know, what we expect. Because I think that one of the examples I give is, you know, where do young people by 18... How have they developed this notion that words are the same as violence? Mm. You know, why, why would word, why would they think that, right? And then you look at the growth of the anti-bullying movement in schools, mm. and you can see where it comes from. So, traditionally, bullying—horrible thing to happen to a kid, right? If a kid is bullied, but you know, you some kid comes in and says, "I'm being bullied," you sort of think, "Oh, you know, that's terrible." You sort of have visions of them being totally intimidated by. You know, people who are, uh, you know, kicking their head in and stealing their money and just cruelty and all the rest of it. And then you sort of say, oh, what's happening? Are you all right? And then one, actually my niece, but uh, she hates me telling this story, actually, it's in the book. <laughs> but my niece said, yeah, because, you know, all the girls, they're going out and they, they, they're going to the pictures on Friday and, and, and I'm not coming. And then they haven't invited me. And I said, because oh, I thought, oh, my God, the poor kid's so distraught. Yeah. And I said, that's not bullying Abby, that's like going out with you, you know. And she's like, no, it's bullying. Anyway, she goes into... Anyway, I suddenly see the school policy is that bullying includes exclusion from friendship group. So she was right and I was wrong. Mm. And these are the bullying rules on the wall, right? So if you, so I started to look at... This was some years ago, but I started to look at anti-bullying policies and they have just expanded exponentially what constitutes bullying. And so it's like, you know aggressive uh, uh, gestures you know uh, no but it, no but it, no but it is you know sort of bullying looks all this sort of thing so and so you have that kind of growth of what bullying is uh, counts as bullying you tell kids that if anything's happened to you you are being bullied you then look at the anti-bullying literature and the experts in bullying and the people who are given you know a set of large organizations and are advising governments and schools and all the rest of it and they say if you're bullied at school it will have lifelong damaging impacts and will lead to years of trauma and mental health problems and might mean that you are unemployable, unemployed, you know, that your life is going to be ruined, right? So we tell kids that being excluded from friendship groups mm. is bullying and we then say that bullying, making no distinction between that and getting your head kicked in, um, will destroy your life. So no wonder if you're 11 and you're being bullied, that not only is it not very nice when it happens to you, but you then think it's going to ruin your life. Mm. And you therefore imagine that when people say horrible things to you, that this is going to destroy you. And it, 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 that exacerbates the problem, right? I mean, as it happens, even if the worst kind of bullying happens to you, I don't think it's going to destroy your life. And I think it's the role of adults to help people get over that and to learn to cope with it. But that's not what they're told. But they're also told the most trivial, silly acts of cruelty by one child to another is going to have this long-lasting impact. And I think then that makes people think, oh, you know, I'm being bullied online. Somebody said they don't like my dress and somebody's called me fat and somebody's said that I'm, I'm and that somebody's prettier. That, and by the time you get through that whole thing and think it's going to destroy your life, that actually makes you anxious. Yeah. And yeah. so actually you can't cope. So you then associate horrible words and 
this is where the free speech issue comes mm, in, mm. with having a damaging, traumatic impact on people. So, of course, this becomes theorised around trigger warnings and safe spaces and so on. We have to ban those people from speaking because their words are harmful, just like the physical act of being punched in the stomach or kicked in the head. The words are harmful. And the term harm has now become a kind of existential, I don't like it. And J.S. Mill's harm principle now incorporates uh, uh, um, harm in this kind of very broad therapeutic meaning of the sense of the, the word. The thing I find worrying about kids is the nature of victimhood. And that everybody nowadays seems to be a victim. Everybody, you know, has something or, you know, and, you know, that everybody is being oppressed. And I just find it worrying because... If you have that attitude, like you said, you, you are going to collapse when the moment you face adversity. And what we're not teaching kids in school, and I'm as guilty of it as anyone as being a teacher, is we're not teaching them resilience. I teach kids so often and I give them all the strategies. I, I teach year six, so that's 10 and 11 year olds. And I give them all the strategies and the, they understand it. And when I give them questions one to 10, where they follow along to the pattern, they can do it. The moment you veer slightly to the right or to the left and ask them for a bit of independent thought, they come up against the barrier, they give up. Pencil goes down, head goes down. And if you do that at 10 and that's not, we don't nip that in the bud, that is going to create an adult who simply is not going to function. Well, I think that's the thing is that vulnerability in the sense that you are vulnerable, which is the consequence of a climate that scaremongers about everything, you are the vulnerable one constantly at threat of everything from the food that you drink to the people that you meet to, and so on and so forth creates the victim doesn't it i mean yeah. that's where you see yourself in that particular way the converse of that of course is that any young person who kind of is a bit bullshy and a bit um you know not you know tries to say i'm not that bothered or or, or doesn't appear to adopt that kind of is is, is treated as though they're either in denial mm or as though they're kind of like insensitive. And in fact, one of the things that the, um, again, the kind of theorizing on the free speech issue is to say that somebody like me who's critiquing Generation Snowflake is that I am insensitive. You know, I am the kind of person who doesn't understand the suffering of the vulnerable young. And some of the, the um, responses to the book were really interesting because I was really nervous. I thought, God, middle-aged woman critiques Generation Snowflake, I'm going to get hammered. <laughs> Every young person is going to think I'm an idiot, right? And, you know, it's a kind of caricature middle-aged woman attacking the young. And I was nervous. Actually, I've had a much more positive response from young people. Mm. And the people who absolutely hate the book and who've, you know, written horrible reviews about it have largely been people who work in educational psychology, social workers, you know, that kind of world, i.e. my peers in the kind of world of policy who think that I am um, being horrible about and to young people. And then they'll say, oh, Claire Fox is just the sort of person who thinks that everybody needs to be bullied in order to harden up. Claire Fox is the sort of person who, if somebody's cutting themselves, you know, in self-harm, says, get on with it, I don't care, and this sort of thing. So you're caricatured as a, as a, a you know, a kind of hard-nosed, a mean-spirited, ungenerous uh, person. And I, I can live with all that. What I'm saying is for people growing up then, the model for if you're gonna get some sort of like hearing is that you are the sensitive, uh, easily offended, uh, you know, vulnerable person. If you're somebody who actually can brush it off and get on with it, 
you're seen to be somehow some kind of psychotic lunatic who's not in touch with their feelings right and that's something wrong with you you're the person that's problematic so of course young people learn that in order to kind of gain the respect of the adult world and of society they actually have to play the victim card and i think that that's kind of a it's not the political form it takes but i think it gives a sort of sense of the world in which some of these big political disputes on free speech occur and you can then see that it's playing the victim card in terms of identity politics accruing more and more examples of one's own vulnerability versus you know the absolute villain of the piece in terms of identity politics and intersectionality which is the the, the white male and it's always kind of like the white male stiff upper lip so again it's this sort of hard-nosed you know whereas the emotionally sensitive uh, vulnerable person who feels the pain they're the ones that everyone says what a wonderful person and this person over there is written off as some kind of monster uh, for not being in touch with their emotional uh, uh, angst and how much of this do you think is, is an exaggerated sense of compassion this idea essentially that being compassionate is so much more important than being practically helpful to a young person that's, I mean, yeah. that's fundamentally what you're talking about. Being compassionate is not always the best strategy for helping a young person through well, yeah, the Yeah, although I think compassion, I'm a bit of a fan of compassion. I, I, I think compassion is not quite the term. I think compassion is all right, but you could, but there's a kind of be cruel to be kind in as much as, you know, like um, as a teacher, you know, if you, go into, if, you, if you go into a class and say, you know, what do you want me to teach? Do you want me to teach, um, you know, kind of, poetry is rap music or you know the lyrics of rap as poetry or do you want me to do Henry the Fourth Part One right and they say rap's much more relevant and then you say good we're not doing that we're doing Henry the Fourth Part One right because I don't need to teach you that but you do need to do this you have to work very hard on that well I don't want to do what's the point in doing Jane Austen's good you know what's the point of I'm not doing that what's the point of course you know you have to be very unpopular for a period of time hmm. yeah. young people do not want to learn what they are entitled to know, all right? It's pretty obvious. You know what I mean? They want to have a great time, or they don't. They don't want to do anything that's going to make their brain hurt, or that's not easily accessible. And adults have lost the courage to look young people in the eye and say, "I don't care that you don't want to know this. You are going to." Well, that's what I meant Despite by myself. compassion. Yeah, I know, but I, but I think all I'm saying is, I think it's compassionate. To give them what they need to know, right? But I mean, I, I you're reframing my point, yeah. Very good. I, no, but I, but I, but I think I think what I'm saying is that you want to be cruel, to be kind, to be compassionate. I, Absolutely. I don't think that kind of fawning over the young and their wants is doing them any favors at all. I think it's a major betrayal, and I also think it shows a certain indifference to them because you're basically more interested in being popular with them than in actually uh, giving them what they're entitled to. And for me, generation is a uh, a generational transaction you know you, you know i have a tiny weeny little bit of understanding about the best that's known and thought not very much but a tiny little bit right and and the little bit i've got i want to pass on uh, you know I, I for me it's like you 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 should know this stuff right this is like the greatest ideas in the world and i want you to have it i'm passing it on to you and we don't do that now right we kind of go this is the great stuff that, that that's known in the world 
but we were worried that it was created by white philosophers who were around you on the slave trade. So it's not that great. After all, I might have to renew it all and review it. But you, interesting 15-year-old digital native, you really do know interesting stuff, right? I can learn from you. And that's the, you know, when you said what's happening in education, mm. it was that turnaround, right? Mm. It was that shift, that beginning to be the shift in educational terms, which was teachers were told that they had to be you know, guides on the side, you know, and we can learn from the students, facilitators and all this. And and I'd say, no, you know, I, I, I and, and of course, if, you, if you've got the confidence to do it, I mean, I wasn't a great teacher, but I was a good teacher, you know, and, and but I would get, you know, these kind of tough, because I taught quite tough kids, really. Um, but, you know, you'd get these kind of like kids would be complete, especially, you know, some of the lads would be like, oh, I'm not used to that. And then you kind of get a rather sensitive essay on the uh, latest Jane Austen novel we've written. And of course, they wouldn't admit that in class. And it took me nearly a year to get them to even read the bloody thing. And yeah. then they'd read it. And then suddenly I'd get this essay to say, you know, it's really important the dilemmas that Emma would go through. And they'd just think, oh, you know, <laughs> is that little secret between them and me that they have discovered a little bit of literature and a little sensitivity. Now, I wasn't going to, well, I didn't read it out in class and show them up, mm. right? But I knew that they knew mm. that a little thing had occurred in our lessons. They'd learned something. They'd read a novel. And also I'd given them a gateway to potentially some literature. That was the least I could do. That just doesn't happen. And in fact, I would consider it to be some sort of like old-fashioned dinosaur type for giving a lecture in an FE college. Because in an FE college where kind of it's kind of working class kids not necessarily... Uh, kind of the greatest academics, you know, I, I insisted on doing lectures. You know, you have to listen, write notes. Do you know what I mean? I'd make a bit of a point about the fact they had to read the books, you know, because <laughs> yes. we were doing literature, all this sort of thing. It was considered, I was considered to be some sort of lunatic. Mm. No, no, do group work. Ask them what they think. But they don't think anything, because I haven't taught them anything yet. What's the point in getting them to sit in groups and talk about a novel they haven't read and they haven't thought. I mean, this is just self-indulgent nonsense. It's a fascinating point because I'm thinking back as you're talking about teaching uh, to my school days. My, my favorite teacher, I didn't even like him, but he was my favorite teacher because he made sure that I learned what I needed and I had a healthy respect for him, but I wouldn't say that I felt some great affinity yeah. to him. Yeah. And if I think back through the great teachers, it was much more about respect and them teaching me something as opposed to uh, liking them. Yeah, this, was is my great, this is my great self-justification for why nobody liked me. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, I think that's the, I think that's the balance I'm trying to say. And I think there's, if you're taking away from me or teaching, but maybe just, just to sort of, I think that there's a collapse of adult authority in the world. And I think mm. what I was trying to, and a, and a belief in the kind of values of the world, you know, so, so for me, that's the greatest betrayal. And so Generation Snowflake, in a way, is kind of both the scaremongering and also this kind of inability, as I say, to look the young in the eye and kind of uh, say to them, these things matter. You know, this is right and this is wrong. Uh, there's a dispute about what would be right and wrong, but to have the courage to do it, rather than to go, I don't really know, what do you think? I mean, he, you know, who cares what they think? I see. I completely agree with you because I used to teach in the London Borough of Newham, which is one of the poorest boroughs in London. And you, I get these kids coming up, and they hadn't been taught the basics. No one had explained to them. And I, every time in the first lesson, I'd say to them, "Here's the thing. I'm your teacher. I'm not your mate. I don't care what you think. Your behaviour is a choice. You choose to behave. 
you've come in to learn. If you choose to misbehave, you not only damage your own education, you damage the education of everyone around you. And here's the thing, most kids would die to be in your position. So if you're going to behave like that, I've got no interest. Out you go. And most of them actually, even like the supposed, I mean, there was always one or two, but the vast majority went, okay. And if they could see themselves learning and progressing, they liked it. Kids crave boundaries. Exactly. And all that these people do, these adults do, who are like, oh, what do you think? It's just, look, just accept that you're a weak person because that's all you are. What kids want of any age is to go, this is it. Yeah. This is what you need to do. Here it is. And I'm sorry, but you've got to work. Well, there's a big argument going on in schools at the moment, which you probably may be familiar with. And um, <clears throat> actually, somebody would be good for you to uh, interview maybe mm. on this is um, uh, Tom Bennett, who's the behaviour czar for the government. But mm. I, I, I think that title is mad. But anyway, he's a great guy. Um, he's interesting, and he and I argue over lots and lots of things, but what he's really good on is behaviour in schools. But one of the things that happens is that if you are somebody who says that there should be quite a strict behaviour code in schools, and this could, these can be over-codified, and some of the stricter schools kind of slightly drive me mad by kind of almost thinking it's a technical activity, you know, everything is so rules-based, but yeah. they've kind of lost sight of what it is they're trying to do. Having said that, the, the the opposite side of the argument that basically says you know putting somebody in detention is the equivalent of putting them into internment or like sort of like like prison and depriving I mean the hyperbole deployed by people to discredit and delegitimize a perfectly reasonable way of organizing a school is incredible and I think that's what um, you know something you're recognizing I suppose with these films which is you know, these are they, they, then it stops being a debate. I mean, if if what you do is simply demonise as beyond the pale, somebody's being like into child abuse because they believe in disciplining kids, that is not a discussion, right? That is not any way kind of a thing. Um, you, it means there's nowhere to go with it. There's nowhere. There's nowhere to have a fruitful conversation. And I find that and one of one of the things that happened to me quite early on in when I started writing about education because when I was teaching I was also writing about education and I suppose that's how I got uh, more interested in getting um, publishing the magazine if you know what I mean because I kind of started to be interested in a, a different kind of journalism and getting the word out I realized it could have a bit of an influence um, and you can't it's hard to do that when you work full-time for an institution these days because they don't like you I mean, all those days anyway, because, you know, you could get disciplined and, and, and so on and so forth. So um, anyway, um, I uh, one of the things I noticed was I'd be arguing what I thought were completely reasonable things about educational standards. And we have some of these things. Right. And I, I, I'd been teaching for some years before I did my PGCE. You didn't have to have a qualification to teach in further education at one point. And then I kind of changed it. So I thought I'd better rush off and get my degree. So I went to Greenwich University. Greenwich uh, Poly as it was then, get my PGCE, utter, I mean, talk about, you know, intellectual nonsense. I mean, I kind of was shocked at what was passing for educational theory. But anyway, I'd argue through these things. People were standing up in the class and denouncing me as a kind of Thatcherite, right-wing fascist because I'd say I believed in discipline. Right, so, you know, when I, I kind of argued for, you know, one girl stood up in the class. She was trained to be a teacher with me. Uh, uh, you know, we were all kind of in our, I don't know, 
I don't know, late 20s, something like that. She said, she said, I can't believe you said that. You know, I failed every exam all through my life and you're basically writing me off as a failure. And I was thinking, of course, no disrespect, but <laughs> what are you doing on this course? Do you yeah. know what I mean? And yes, if you fail every exam, it probably means something. Yeah. Yeah. And the idea yeah. that I should kind of somehow say, and she said, this is the system that oppresses the working classes. I was like, no, it doesn't. Working class people pass exams all the bloody time. It's <laughs> yeah. insulting, right? And all this kind of thing. And then and then kind of, and I got a reputation during the year. There I was, lefty Marxist teacher, and people started caricaturing me. It's like, oh, she's just like the Daily Mail. Yeah. And I, and I realised that this was just a way of trying to close you down mm. and close down debate. And as it happens, on the left, historically, internationally, high standards of education and left-wing thinking are actually bedfellows, not the opposite. You know, or there's no, you know, the idea that the kind of history of uh, radicalism is based on some kind of philistine, you know, you shouldn't ask people to do exams in case they fail and then it dooms them to being oppressed. I mean, mm. that's just not what it's about at all. Exams, as it happens, by the way, were brought in and supported by trade unions because they were meritocratic, because they took no interest in people's background. Mm. They simply measured whether you'd achieved or not. And I always find that rather inspiring universal aspiration. You know, anyone can sit the exam and anyone can do really well at it. I think that was great. Although you could argue that towards the far left end of the spectrum, uh, when it comes to the left wing, it eventually ends up in shutting down ideas. So if you're you know, like Cuba, for example, or Venezuela. Oh God, there's loads of examples. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I understand that, but all I'm saying is, I, yes, but I, as I say, I don't, that's kind of practical examples of countries that are basket cases, and I agree. Yeah. Um, but I, I'm for free speech. I was simply saying that in, in terms of its philosophical tradition, yeah. there's nothing okay. that associates the left with being uh, a, a, a apologist for philistinism yeah. or, or, or for failure, mm. effectively. Yeah. Um, Anyway. Uh, well, let me drag the two of you away from education. Sorry, 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 sorry. No, no, we, we, we've done together, a great yeah. bit on education. I think it's yeah. great. Uh, well, actually, I think the things that the other things we we're very interested to talk to you about they're kind of the adult manifestation of some of the things that you're talking about with kids, which is a, a culture of hypersensitivity and partly what you've just talked about, which is a culture of saying, if you don't agree with me, you're evil. If you don't agree with me, you are that other thing that must not be engaged with. And wherever we look at the kind of identity politics which you refer to, whether it's modern feminism or any other things that happen within that identity politics bracket, they all seem to be subject to this complete inability or unwillingness to actually debate things, which is what you've created with the Institute of Ideas and the debating things that you do. How, why do you think being able to discuss ideas is so important? Well, I mean, first of all, because there's no I, I I do not believe that I have stopped changing my mind about things. And so I think it's, um, you know, the ability to hear other opinions um, can mean that I might change my mind and uh, or, or improve the way I argue or just get a new perspective on the world. So even from an entirely personal point of view, I think it's a peculiar idea to have in your head that, you know, you at any age say, this is what I think and that's it. I mean, never will it ever change. I mean, obviously, as you get older, you're more accustomed to having developed and thought back your ideas. But I mean, nonetheless, <clears throat> one wants to be open all the time. The world changes as well, so you need to be able to take account of things that change. <coughs> Sorry, that seems to me to be so important because 
This idea that you sort of say, right, this is what I think. I'm never going to think anything else. I mean, you might I mean, you just hide under the bed. I mean, what would that mean? I mean, you just say, I, you know, how boring it would mean that you'd read a book and nothing would occur. I mean, you know, that you'd, you'd never be able to, to watch a podcast and your brain work because you'd say, no, 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 this is what I think and nothing else will, you know. So for me, it's because we all, don't we, um, want to access new ideas to stimulate ourselves, to kind of test out. And also because, by the way, there's a lot of problems in the world that need solving and we need as many people kind of addressing them as possible and you need to be open-minded to consider that. I think as well that the intellectual life, by the way, is exciting and I think that, you know, there's nothing more brilliant than when you read a novel or you read an... I've just read um, Andrew O'Hagan's uh, essay on Grenfell in the London Review of Books. Uh, it's it's like something like 30,000, it might even be longer, 30,000 words, but it's, it's like a little book. I mean, just, I learned everything. It's the most perfect essay. Um, it makes you think, it's shocking, it's moving, it reveals new information. It's a brilliant piece of journalism. It's fantastically important uh, way of understanding the world. Um, Demos have just brought out a new report on nostalgia, which is based on the notion that Probably people voted Brexit and uh, populism in France and Germany based on nostalgia, a thesis which I completely disagree with. But the report is well written. It's got great quotes in it. I loved it. I kind of learned a huge amount from it. So I didn't agree with the thesis, but it was fantastic. And, you know, and then I kind of bore everyone rich. And I said, oh, God, this, you've got to read the demos book on the You've got to read the LR, as I'm doing with you. Mm -hmm. Because you learn, you know, things I didn't know. It's not feasible. So... I believe everyone's like that and everyone should be like that and ideas are important because society cannot move on cannot uh, resolve any problems cannot um uh, uh, solve the problems of humanity if we're not constantly intellectually open to each other's developing ideas people who are brighter than us taking ideas from 2000 years ago and thinking about how they apply today people who are not as bright as us, but have got an absolutely sharp wit who see something in a different way. Mm. People whose experiences are different, which is why, you know, identity politics is one of the great tyrannies of our time. But that's not to say that you don't want to have any knowledge of somebody's personal experience mm. uh, through that, that created by their identity, because that can give you a great insight as well. So, of course, the frustration of this kind of stratified, static, dead intellectual climate that we live in. I can speak on this. I know you don't. Don't speak to me. I refuse to listen. Well, I think it's more than that, actually. I think quite often now it's not that someone will say, you said this thing and you're wrong. No, you're right. It's not even that. It's you're evil. You're bad. You have no right. To, you are white or you are... Well, they, they you're say bad. you're white. I mean, so it's not just what you... It's not just what you're allowed to discuss today. It's who's given permission to discuss it. And that's, that's right. become very problematic, of course, because it becomes um, impossible to have a discussion about confronting racism or any issues in relation to racism if you aren't from an ethnic minority. And, of course, it becomes ever more divisive, by the way, because then you kind of get people saying, oh, well, you know, it's already well Meghan Markle because she can pass for white, so she's not the kind of right kind of black. Or then you get the kind of disputes around politics. Kanye West, you know, wrong kind of politics. So he's uh, an Uncle Tom because he looks like he's supporting. So even within the identity groups that are given permission, you actually can only follow one script anyway as it goes. 
and it becomes particularly unpleasant in that way of sort of like accruing you know i i, I may um you know because i always make the point you well when people say i find that offensive i mean they're not just telling you i mean they're saying i find that offensive shut up right yeah. it's, it's not like just an observation mm. um of course it's given an added moral weight today when you say you know as a woman i find that offensive i mean that's it right well then that's not enough you see so as a muslim woman i find that offensive you know as a disabled trans woman you you know and so on and so on and so you're accruing all the time because it's like sort of ratcheting up mm. how can i stop you know what's my unique position to say this and not it's like creates a field around you once you've said as a woman i find that offensive that means no one's allowed to comment that's it it, it creates a culture of fear because then what you're saying is that my opinion is worth more than yours and also as well you're potentially now entering into the realms of racism and intolerance. Exactly. And if you enter into the realms of racism and intolerance and that label sticks to you, that can affect everything from how the way people see you to your career prospects. And it is a feeling of terror. And we all feel that at certain mm. points when we engage in these topics of conversation. I do it and I start getting worried. Yeah, you know, I call it sweaty back syndrome where you just think, oh my word, have I said the wrong thing? Can I be misinterpreted? Am I going to look racist, sexist, mis- whatever it is? And can you imagine what it's like? So, so, so that is entirely accurate. And I think you only have to look at what's happening on American campuses to see how far we could go. We're only starting and we're usually kind of behind the trends in terms of America, just in terms of the number of people who are being sacked and, uh, you know, people being... a uh, kicked out of universities and so on and so forth, they're being expelled. And as you say, it's not just that they've been called racist. I mean, you know, once you've got that label, I mean, you know, and obviously because I'm not interested in, um, uh, you know, because it's like the it's kind of the worst thing, isn't it? You know, uh, uh, misogynist, racist, you know, bigot, right? You'll never work again, but it's not just that anyway. I'm not a bloody bigot, so you don't want, you know, it's like it's like a horrible thing. You spend the whole time having to to get out of the straitjacket of that term. But the other thing about the the terror is, can you imagine what it's like for people who aren't au fait with the rules? I mean, we know the rules, right? What happens is, is that for millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of people in this country, right, they haven't, they don't know the rules of intersectionality and what language you can use, right? They can inadvertently wander in and say something perfectly reasonably in good faith and can be absolutely castigated, humiliated, you know, and thrown to the dogs. I mean, it's so unpleasant. Uh, And I think it's difficult if you know the rules, but it's just that people will uh, break the rules inadvertently, you know. I remember, I mean, this is quite a controversial one, but, you know, the gay marriage issue is fascinating for me because for many years, nobody demanded gay marriage. I mean, it really wasn't a big issue on, on in the uh, kind of LGBT community. It just wasn't, nobody was kind of, it wasn't like a big radical demand. People weren't actually, there were some people arguing, but it wasn't a big thing. Largely because I think in the kind of uh, lesbian and gay culture, there had been a kind of like, you know, we're not, we're, we're not interested in bourgeois marriage. You know, it's like, you know what I mean? We want equality. We don't want to be treated differently, but we're not, marriage wasn't the big thing. Anyway, within six months or something you know david cameron announced he's going to bring in gay, a tory he's going to bring in uh, uh, gay marriage and suddenly you had to agree with gay marriage or you were a homophobic bigot now i mean it was like so, there wasn't even a, there wasn't a campaign there was no argument there was no debate and 
I think perfectly reasonably, you know, friends of mine and family of mine from, you know, from my from where I'm from, um, uh, uh, less in the kind of uh, intellectual world and so on, were a bit like they couldn't, they were a bit bemused. I mean, they weren't particularly hostile. I mean, they didn't go on marches against it, but they sort of said, well, that's a bit, gay marriage odd. Why does a man want to marry a man or a woman want to? I was like, oh, those backwards, you know, bigots. You know, it's that kind of homophobic deplorable <laughs> how would you have just worked out that you're meant to change your mind marriage has been between people of opposite sex sexes for a very long time you come along and declare from on high that if you don't agree with that you're a bigot without ever trying to convince anyone and that was it you know well, it's a very effective bigots, tactic right? isn't it that's, yeah. that's the reason and, and, it's and it made, but it made me realize how scary it was because i find it very tricky to kind of have that argument and even now I'm sort of like <laughs> I don't want yeah. to, I'm not a bigot mm. I don't want anyone to think um but I it was the speed with which mm. you had to learn the language right and that people would go on to me and sort of say I'm not sure about gay marriage and people say you know there's a real problem of uh, you know they need to go on re-education courses <laughs> and all that sort of thing and I think that what happens then is is that it silences many people it effectively kicks them out of the public square because they know that they don't know how to react or there's a kind of underground reaction to it, and, a kind of, and this can take quite an unpleasant form sometimes, which is to kind of associate yourself with people who play on the bigotry question a bit, because you kind of you're just aware of the fact that you're walking on eggshells the whole time. You can't say what you think. You're frightened that you might get done over for saying the wrong thing. Your sweaty back point. That happens to so many people. What 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 that either does is kind of kills the soul, and you right kicks you out public discourse, right? It means that you're not allowed to ever speak again. You have to go away, drop out of politics, drop out of everything. Or you can only do it in the kind of most clandestine, underground sort of sense. And very often with young people, that can take the form of a kind of a reaction, a, a kind of quite reactionary reaction. I, I, sorry, I, I know I'm talking a lot. Um, the, uh, That's why we have you here. Yeah. Yes, keep talking. I, I was very upset recently about what happened at Warwick University. Um, I went to Warwick University, so I kind of just... 11 students. There was a Facebook, private Facebook group. Oh, yes. Yeah? Yeah. Uh, 12 students involved in uh, lads, and uh, they, they, they had conversations on their Facebook group that were... Met to, where they made... Some of them made rape jokes, and some of them said some pretty uh, racially insensitive things, to say the least. But in my opinion, first of all, it was a private conversation amongst 12 people. For me, it was a, an insight into um, if you make everything verboten, a kind of childish reaction is to kind of tell the bad jokes that you're not meant to tell. I, 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 on the one hand, one of those people reported them. They've now been um, suspended from university. Their lives are destroyed effectively and they've been accused of, uh, of being uh, part of the rape culture. I mean, that I don't know it's going to let them back in. Some of them are going to be lawyers. That's that. that that's the they're dispensable. Collateral damage in the culture wars of today, right? Mm. Vile behaviour, in my view. Um, so private conversation no longer private. So God knows. And then there's sort of front pages of the local newspapers and of the student paper that women at Warwick universities are frightened to cross campus because they think there's going to be rapes. I mean, these are kind of puerile, stupid boys. I mean, of all. Let me tell you, rapists don't kind of make a habit of kind of having a chat on Facebook before going out raping. Mm. That's not the kind of modus mm. operando, right? You know, well, I'll just have a chat about it before I do it. I mean, do you know what I mean? But this was kind of right. So it has a scaremongering impact on young women, demonises all the male students at Warwick universities, 
and my original point was there was something about that chat and I've noticed it myself in terms of things that happen on Twitter and social media and young people I know who personally is aware of kicking against the you can't say that culture kind of go into a kind of Milo Yiannopoulos you know kind of feminism is cancer yeah. type mode almost out of frustration yeah and I can understand that psychologically because you can't just be told you can never speak about anything you're not allowed it's one of the reasons Jordan Peterson I think is so popular yeah. is that he makes he makes all these points in a coherent way and people go oh wait there is something unexplained and here's someone who's actually giving shape to some of the things that I've been thinking about there was a very interesting article in the Times a couple of weeks back. I don't know if you saw it. It's with Matthew Paris when he wrote about the bad behaviour of the Liberals in Ireland when it came to the abortion campaign. And he just said some of the way they spoke to the Conservatives, the way they demonised them, the way they portrayed them. And he, and he came out and said, look, the classic thing, I'm actually pro-abortion. I believe in women's rights for her to have an abortion. However, I believe the behaviour by the campaign uh, by some of the proponents of the campaign was disgraceful. And then you had people on Twitter and whatever else saying, you know, he's disgusting what he's saying. And it was just like, no, but when did it become reasonable just to be unreasonable? I know. When did, when, when did, we, when did it become acceptable to start attacking other people and yeah. to be vile just because they disagreed with but you? But there's an illiberal liberalism, isn't that? Which is very dangerous for those of us who have some aspiration to fit under the liberal heading, liberal in the sense of being um, the liberal tradition associated with the enlightenment of free thinkers, um, that kind of it's the liberals who are leading the charge on this. And I, and I felt equally squeamish about the abortion debate, by the way, because I was overexcited, and from an Irish um, Catholic background, and I was overexcited about the island vote and about what happened, because, you know, it's a fantastic thing. Um, but... And I never thought I'd see it either, right? But I uh, hated some of those campaigners. Because, you know, the thing is also that, you know, people are allowed in conscience to say that they think that abortion is a sin, is wrong, is morally wrong. Um, that is allowed, right? They, that doesn't make them misogynist. I think they're wrong. I don't, I don't agree with their religious sensibility. But you've got to... Uh, otherwise, you basically abolish uh, free conscience. Mm. And you basically say, we'll change the law, you've got to go along with it now. Well, no, you don't. I mean, if the law is going to be the de the, de the decider of conscience, obviously that's authoritarian. Uh, I mean, that's a kind of fascist outlook. I mean, that's like a proper uh, state-controls-your-mind stuff, right? Mm. Um, no, I mean, there's lots of laws I disagree with, I'm going to say so. But in, particularly in relation to religious freedom, it's hugely important to defend religious freedom even if you don't agree with it, because that's the basis on which you say we are a tolerant society. It doesn't mean that I'm going to... It, it doesn't mean that... Uh, it shouldn't be protected, uh, as in, you know, we can't say that if you insult a religion that you, you, you're going to be done for offensiveness, but similarly, you've got to say that somebody has to follow their conscience. That's the basis on which we are individual autonomous citizens. That's the only way it works. Um, and again, this is the infantilizing process because if you've got only one script to follow, then actually you can never grow up. You don't need to hear the other side of the argument, do you? No. Do you know what no. I mean? You just have to learn the script. You learn the script. Anyone who doesn't follow the script is a lunatic. You're hateful. Should be banned anyway because they're not following the script. And what, what, in terms of why this does young people no favours, 
is because as soon as they encounter an argument that is an argument, because they've, they've actually not ever heard an argument, they can't maintain the script because they're actually only repeating something as it were by rote. They're not used to having to defend that argument. So I don't mean that they should change their mind when they argue with someone like me or anyone else. But but they they're so unused to the argument that they actually collapse and heave, but they can't do it. So of course then they associate, and then they kind of they definitely don't want those speakers in then because then they kind of might have to argue. But you know that's what J S Mill brilliantly explains that you don't really understand that your argument's right um, unless it's kind of clashed against unless you've heard the other arguments. That's you can't, you can't just say my argument's right. I know this because the only argument I've heard. It has to be exposed to the light of the other argument so you can work it out. And actually, you might never change your mind, but you'll get better at arguing if you expose yourself to other sides. Francis, before you ask your next question, by the way, the the correct term is (laughs) pro-choice. You said pro-abortion. I think it would have been a lot less likely to get a successful outcome. Although, in fact, for many years, I think many of us said that we were pro-abortion. Yeah. Yeah. It's got got less of an appeal. No, but the reason why they kind of changed it, of course, was because they thought it might put people off. Yeah, it's a marketing thing. Uh, I'm kidding, man. No, no, but it's um, you made me forget my point, Good. Constantine. How dare you? Good. No, do you think that this sort of polarisation we've got now? I don't want to interact with you because you're racist, sexist. You're a snowflake. Blah blah blah. Do you think it's given rise to what we see now in politics? We have someone like Trump on one hand, uh, Hillary on the other. There doesn't seem to be a middle ground. Brexit, Remain, people screaming at each other. I think that the that the. the I think that the echo chamber effect or the kind of the the sense of saying um following that script as I say uh, is reflecting that. I think it's all slightly different. I mean I I I'm tempted to say yes but it's not quite right. I mean I think that we know that Trump one of the reasons why Trump got elected was because he he definitely appealed to those people who felt that they were the ones who weren't being listened to, weren't following the script and realised, you know, part of the left behind scenario, it's not just an economic left behind, and that's a misunderstanding, I think. It was kind of aware of the fact that there was this kind of whole culture built up that apparently the only, you, that you had to support, you know, um, you know, uh, um, it was the toilets arguments on transgender, I can't really remember the way, but it was kind of like this sort of, you know, if you don't agree with transgender toilets then you're really out you know what I mean and people sort of there was a big debate in America about it and people were just sort of saying what what yeah. what what and so that I think that there was that and then also identity politics informed the people who voted for Hillary she assumed uh, I mean sorry she assumed that identity would be one of the big mm. things so she didn't try and argue beyond that and I think there's something of um Trump's appeal kind of said, well, there's one identity that gets ignored and that's the white working class. And there was a kind of element of that as well. So I think that there was certainly a reaction against crudely put political correctness and identity politics in Trump's vote. But I also think that Trump is kind of himself a hugely um, significant snowflake. I mean, he's like, for me, the embodiment of snowflakery, you know, surrounds himself by sycophants Mm. who agree with him the whole time. Um, It's a kind of safe space. And um, you know, lashes out at any criticism and kind of takes, you know, and tries to close it down. You know, tries to ban anyone. So I mean, the irony is, is that he himself is kind of like a walking embodiment of that kind of overspoiled, uh, uh, um, 
unable to interact, uh, not prepared to debate type person. So I don't want to make any virtues in relation to what I think is a real problematic way that he's running society. The Brexit, but but on the other hand, I think that the way that the 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 inability, um, uh, as explained by Mark Leela brilliantly after after Trump got elected, he's a professor of humanities. Uh, yeah, and he wrote a fantastic article on identity um, in the New York Times, and is of course as a consequence gone on to be now called an apologist for white supremacism. Um, but anyway, <laughs> he's a, I, I mean really seriously, he's like a serious humanities guy, right? Um, professor. But anyway, he sort of said. That one of the problems was the the inability of the kind of liberal young, young liberals to go beyond a kind of narcissistic obsession with their own identities that meant that they were unable to reach out beyond them to 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 gain the votes of people not like themselves and I think that that was quite an astute he explained it perhaps better quote than I've just given but more or less that and that really struck home rang home for me I think that in the build-up to the Brexit referendum, into the to the EU referendum, I constantly was meeting people in the circuits that I um, uh, travel in who would say, I mean, has anyone ever met a Brexit supporter? <laughs> you say, yes. Well, first of all, I'm one, and they'd laugh because they thought I was joking. Yeah. yeah. I was both saying, they go, ha, <laughs> I said, no, I am going to vote Brexit. Oh, my God. But... When they'd say, you know, has anyone ever met a Brexit? It's like, sort of like, get out more. You know what I mean? I mean, mm. you know. Mm. And subsequent to the vote, people still make these kind of comments. I mean, who's met these people? It's like, what do you mean? There's an awful lot of them. You should They're be the boasting that you don't know them, them yeah. right? Yeah, exactly. And in the build up of the referendum, there might, at that point, we might not have known there was going to be a majority, but we did know that there was a lot of them, right? But in there, there, there was no imagination. So I think one of the consequences of kind of, identity politics in the broader sense of sort of saying our kind of people means that there's this inability to understand a world beyond uh, people who follow the script and and to assume that uh, uh, which is the other thing because this is not just equal sided is it i mean you know it's not just that i mean it's it's to write off huge swathes of people as deplorables and low information that is most distasteful for me and so it's not a kind of equal thing. I mean, you could say, well, of course, if you're living in, uh, uh, you know, part, you know, if you're living in Sunderland, you also could, don't understand the world of being part of the metropolitan elite. You know, we've all got separate lives, right? But it, but, but what I think is most horrible is, is that, you know, people in the metropolitan elite who are often very influential, um, write off people in parts of the country because they haven't got qualifications as being stupid and ill-informed rather than just living a different life. And those kind of attitudes that emerged have really grated. And so that's made it worse. You know what I mean? I mean, if you're called a racist, ignorant, stupid person because you voted Brexit, it's really hard to not get wound up. Well, absolutely. And I find it very frustrating. I mean, look, Francis' (coughs) mother's from Venezuela. I'm from Russia. I came to this country when I was 11. Uh, We both voted Remain, right? Yeah. Yeah. So we both voted Remain. But what I found incredible and very upsetting, actually, is... In the Brexit campaign and after the Brexit campaign, this idea that British people are these racist xenophobes is completely counter to every experience I've had in this country. I mean, this is one of the most tolerant countries in the history of the world. But it's also the case that most people who voted Remain um, have accepted 
the referendum results mm. and, and done so, you know, loads of my friends voted Remain, mm. loads of my friends voted Brexit. I mean, we were kind of, it was, as you know, it was lots of people arguments before and mm. afterwards, and you know, my family was split, but but actually not in that way that everyone says very acrimonious. But I have been, but I have been really shocked by how a substantial hardcore have kind of framed the debate subsequent, well, in the build-up to and subsequent, of writing off Brexit voters. But I've been uh, encouraged by how many of my Remain friends are also shocked, <laughs> as in the way that you've said. I mean, hmm. it's given us an insight into the way things work in a way that is like it's frightening, horrible. right? Absolutely horrible. But it's definitely kind of like a kind of top, you know, it's kind of like, it's like one of the things is you think, oh my God, you know, the establishment don't like it when they lose. Yeah. You know, like that, like these people don't like it. Like, like there's, there's whole swathes of very influential people who are just furious and furious and will never forgive and I'll not, you know, even God Almighty. And, and whereas most ordinary Remain voters are like, sort of, oh, well, that's a shame, but now we get, we've got to leave the EU, have we? And then suddenly you end up in a civil war. And the, the problem is, is that then the, the people who are kind of leading the Remain won't give in, they're not letting this happen easily, have kind of whipped up what then becomes a sort of new form of identity politics, whether you're Remain or, or, or leave. And I keep trying to um, say, and by the way, we're not the Institute of Ideas anymore. I should just add that we've changed our name to the Academy of Ideas oh, okay. because um, the Institute of Ideas apparently is a word you can't use the word institute. Um, and so after 18 years, um, we had to change it because somebody complained. <laughs> <laughs> so for 18 um, years, it was perfectly fine. Yes. And then now, now I, I don't suppose it's got anything to do with the post-Brexit, you know, make people... <laughs> couldn't possibly anything to couldn't do be. with that. But anyway, and, um, but, but I, I think that it, 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 I've tried to, at the Academy of Ideas work, at the Battle of Ideas Festival that we organise, I've tried to say, can we just go beyond these labels? Can we just go uh, and, and say it doesn't matter? But what's your attitude now? Yeah. I mean, the one thing that I find frustrating with a lot of Remain voters is this, is that they vote to Remain and therefore that means they're a good person. And I find it baffling, especially when they go, oh, I'm a Corbynista Remainer. And I'm like, well, Corbyn isn't pro-Remain. Corbyn's a Brexiteer. If you are hard left, a lot of a lot, you, you would argue that's in, incompatible for voting for the EU. Exactly. I mean, I, I, I've... I don't know Jeremy Corbyn very well, but let me tell you the main ways that I've known Jeremy Corbyn over the many years that he's been involved in politics and I've kind of known him as somebody is because of his attitudes to the EU. He was a Benite, um, anti-EU person all, all my political life that I've known. And you're right, I mean, so people don't understand that bit. But no, it, you know, we haven't discussed virtue signalling and I know we've got to start discussing everything, but... Yeah. There is this kind of, I find it very galling that people would say, you know, all these ignorant Brexit voters don't know anything about the EU. And um, I'd ask people, well, let's talk about the EU then. And they knew nothing about the EU. Oh, yeah. So what, they, what they were saying was, particularly young people, actually, uh, and of course there was this kind of like, as young people, we're being betrayed, you know, and the EU is everything. And, you know, people, people would say, you know, the EU, how are we going to travel? Yeah. What are you talking about? <laughs> you know, sort of like, well, I mean, EU, and, you know, people would say things. I, I kind of made this point. You know, somebody said to me, yeah, but you, I mean, you like Beethoven. I mean, what's wrong with you? And I said, well, Be 
the EU didn't create Beethoven, right? You know yeah. what I mean? It's like this sort of like everything. But you like European culture, Claire. How can you be so anti-European? I'm not anti-European. I don't like the EU. Yeah. It's a particular institution. I think we should get out. I love Europe. I consider myself to be European. Do you know what I mean? I mean, what do you, you know? But it became a, I am a good person. Yeah. And that became a closing down of mind. So the irony of saying that people were uh, ignorant bigots who were voting Brexit was that far too many people before the vote assumed that you would just vote Remain if you were any kind of a nice person who liked, who was international outlook, would looking. That was it. I and not travel. racist. And not racist. So... Well, I think that's our time. Uh, before we finish, we always like to ask one final question, which is what is the one issue that no one is talking about that we should be talking about? Um, this is a slightly uh, peculiar one, but I, I, I think there's a real problem um, with allowing the police to close down rap videos on YouTube. I think that... Um, the issues of youth violence and crime in society are underestimated. Um, uh, sorry, the, the, the way that that issue is being used to assault free speech um, is, is something that we should look out for. So there's a, a consistent attempt by the police to target certain types of um, music videos and remove them from the web. So that might sound like, why? what is she talking about? I did not um, expect you to bring uh, no, rap no, music up, I'm no, going to be honest. No, but I... The reason why it's important is because, it, I mean, it's particularly drill music, but I think that the reason why it's important is because these small little aspects of the culture wars kind of go on, and suddenly you get the head of the Metropolitan Police saying that it's very important to check whether the lyrics of songs um, uh, incite violence. And you think, what? The head of the Met? And then in telling YouTube to remove videos of types of music. Now, this seems like such a small thing that you could just let it go. What's that got to do with anything? And, you know, drill music, hardly me. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> I'm not a fan, particularly. Uh, all the drill musicians who are watching now are thinking, thank God for that, our credibility be <laughs> <laughs> But on the other hand, um, to let the state, or indeed the, the, the big corporates who run the social media platforms, remove types of music because the lyrics don't pass some purity test, is one of those kind of free speech issues that we should all make much more of a fuss about. And so I suppose, uh, for me, sometimes you have to find these small issues. And also um, on the rap music issue, a 19-year-old Liverpoolian girl was recently found guilty because she posted a rap song on her Instagram page after a 13-year-old was killed in a car accident and he liked that rap singer she posted the lyrics and of one uh, rap song that contained the n-word and as a consequence she was found guilty of uh, section 123 i think it is of the communications act she's on a she's found guilty she had no criminal record for that um she she was found guilty of race you know of, of of hate crime um she got a fine but she's got a tag and she's got an eight to eight curfew and a eight in night till eight in the morning curfew. She's 19 and a criminal record for hate crime, which, you know, racism, right? Yeah. Because she likes rap. So these like little things, right? And they chip away behind the scenes, a bit unfashionable. And I don't, you know, and a lot of the people who create um, drill music are gang members and undoubtedly some of them are unsavory. 
And it might feel a bit weird to say that somebody like me should defend them, but they're the hard cases on free speech that we need to defend. So uh, we organised a big festival, the Battle of Ideas Festival, which I hope you two will come to. You yeah, we'd love to. And, love to and also, like, we've got loads of speakers. You'll be able to get loads of people from the show. We'd love to. Yeah, we'll, let's to talk about that. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. Anyway, we're going to have one of the big debates going to be on rap. Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. So all sorts of things. Um, yes, yeah, so that's one of my. That's one of my. I want to talk about that a lot more. It's interesting. Brilliant. You're the second person we've spoken to today who's brought up the issue of drill music. Yeah. Believe it or not. Really? Yeah. But yeah. we'll talk about that after. Anyway, uh, you're on Twitter. Uh, I'm on Twitter at at fox underscore claire at fox uh, fox underscore claire. And uh, if you follow Claire also by her book, I find that offensive. Uh, I'm at failing human. I'm at Constantine Kissin and. Do you want to do the honours? Yes, um, if you've enjoyed the show, which I hope you have done, um, please give us a rating on iTunes, five stars, please. Leave a nice comment. Um, also, as well, tell a friend, share it. Um, and uh, yeah, S- Subscribe that, to our YouTube channel. That's the one, that's the last one. <laughs> subscribe Perfect. to the YouTube channel, and uh, thanks a lot for watching. See you next week. Before you go, consider joining our exclusive member feed. As a member, you'll get ad-free and extended interviews. Click the membership link in the podcast description or find the exclusive episodes link on your podcast listening app to join us.